Put on the whole armor of God, that he may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that he may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, who reignest in heaven and on earth, whose hand rules and overrules in all things, we give thanks unto thee that thy wisdom has governed us all the days of our life, that thou hast brought good out of our folly, that thou hast overruled us in our waywardness and brought forth good out of all things according to thy word. And so, our Father, in gratitude we come to thee, rejoicing in thy government, confident in thy grace, delighting in thy mercies, to praise thee as we ought, and to beseech thee for thy mercy's sake. For those of our number who are in want, for thy suffering saints all over the world, and for the prosperity of thy kingdom. Bless us in thy service, in Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture is 2 Kings 19, verses 32 following. Our subject, causality. 2 Kings 19, 32 through 37. Really the conclusion of two chapters dealing with the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. 2 Kings 18 and 19. Second Kings 19, verses 32 37. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. When they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed, and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer his son smote him with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. Our subject this morning is causality. A cause is that power or agent which produces a thing or event. The idea of a cause implies the idea of a purpose, a goal, or an end. It has reference, therefore, to persons and to God, ultimately. 
This is why the causality concept has been abandoned by modern philosophy and by contemporary philosophers of science. They have no desire to imply that there is a personal power behind events, ultimately the power of God. And therefore, they have replaced the idea of causality with the probability concept. Thus, instead of saying that gravity is a law, there is a probability that falling bodies will act in certain ways. There is a probability that the sun will rise in a certain area and set in a certain area. They will not speak of laws. This is quite logical. In a universe of chance in which God is denied, no causality can exist. Only chance prevails. Because, first of all, in such a realm there is no universe. The idea of a universe implies, because the word uni means one, a one world of law and a one world of operation. There is no reason to believe in this if you deny God. This is why Clark Kerr, very logically, a decade ago said that we must abandon the concept of a universe for a multiverse and the idea of a university, a unified body of knowledge, for the concept of a multiversity in which anything goes except the idea of God, Scripture, a unified world of law. Then second, we must say that where causality is denied and only chance prevails, no history is possible. Because we cannot say there is a direction, a meaning, a goal in history. This is why in one of the major universities of this state, a professor of philosophy two years ago began, a professor of history two years ago began the school term by saying the idea of history is a myth, there is no such thing as history, to believe that there is such a thing as history, a meaningful, purposeful direction to events, is to believe in a myth. At the state of California, he continued, is paying me a salary to teach you history, and so we will proceed. Now, he was very logical, and he was honest. God denied history disappears. A cause is a sequence of meaningful events, and it is set in a sequence and a context of total meaning. And as Christians, we must insist that this world of total meaning is precisely what we face. But many of our problems, of course, at the hands of scientists are due precisely to the fact that meaning is so total and so complex. To illustrate, a Canadian scientist, A.C. Custance, has said, and I quote, 
In physiology, for example, we dissect the body or we experiment with it only as an electrochemical machine, and our findings confirm the effectiveness of our tools of research and our own methodology by giving us the only kind of information we were looking for. But, as Paul Weiss, recognizing this aspect of the inherent limitation of the scientific method observed, maybe our concept of our nervous system is equally inadequate and insufficient because so long as you use only electrical instruments, you get electrical answers. And if you determine numerical and geometrical values, you get numerical and geometrical answers. So perhaps we have not yet found the particular kind of instrument that tells us the next unknown. Unquote. Very well put. Reality is so complex and is such a great network of interlocking laws and structures and design that it does present a problem. And this is why if you look for an electrochemical machine in the body, you find it. And if you look for a numerical and geometrical answer, you find it. In fact, almost any kind of tool you design will tell you this is it. But reality is more complex than any of these machines. A very simple illustration of this kind of problem, of course, occurred in medicine some years ago. A good many years ago, I recall a doctor saying that in his day, many, many years ago, a sure way to get kicked out of his medical school was to infer that ulcers had a psychological cause. Why? Well, at his particular school, there was a specialist who had proven that it was a chemical reaction. He was right. But he was also more than that. He had looked for a chemical answer, and he had found it. Since then, they've looked for a psychological answer, and they have found it. And this does not mean that they have exhausted the subject. One of the problems, of course, that still perplexes us is that with Newtonian science, men began to look at causality in terms of a collision, a next-to-next -next thing, one atom hitting another, one body colliding with another, a one-to-one -one thing. But causality is much more complex. Everything exists in a total network of everything. And so the number of causes that come to focus on a single event, on a single effect, is so multiple that it is really beyond description. Now, in terms of this, let's look at our scripture, and then back away from it to look at the problem of causality again. 
Our scripture gives us an incident that two chapters in full, 2 Kings 18 and 19, describe for us. The same events are given to us in Isaiah 37 and 38. It is one of the best attested events in ancient history. Thus we are dealing with something that even secular historians will recognize to have occurred. Of course, not in any biblical sense. What happened? Sennacherib began to move against the Palestinian world against Syria and Israel, Judea, and the adjacent, adjacent areas. Judea, which supposedly had undergone a reformation at the hands of King Hezekiah, immediately moved to make an alliance with Egypt. The Reformation was not treated as serious by either the prophet Micah or the prophet Isaiah, both of whom were present and wrote at that time. As a matter of fact, while the supposed Reformation was underway, Isaiah in his first chapter gives a bitter indictment of its hypocrisy and its meaninglessness. Moreover, Isaiah thoroughly condemns the alliance with Egypt. Alliances in the ancient world were also religious alliances. And scripture always declares, and it speaks for all time, that an alliance is not only a political union, but a religious one. You fight for a common cause because you believe in certain things in common. And therefore, there should be an avoidance of alliances unless there is a common faith. This is why for almost two centuries, There was an avoidance in the United States for religious reasons of what George Washington called entangling alliances. And I submit he was right. But religiously, as well as politically, we had no business in World War I or II or in Korea or in Vietnam. The Bible is right about alliances then we have been wrong. Now, Sennacherib moved against Hezekiah and Judea. And we have Sennacherib's inscription as to what happened. As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to the countless small villages in their vicinity and conquered them. I drove out of them 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, and considered them booty. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem. His royal residence like a bird in a cage. Hezekiah himself, and the terror-inspiring splendor of my lordship, 
had overwhelmed and whose irregular and elite troops had deserted him, did send me later to Nineveh, together with thirty talents of gold, eight hundred talents of silver, precious stones, and tinami, large cuts of red stone, couches inlaid with ivory, elephant hide, ebony wood, boxwood, and all kinds of valuable treasures, his own daughters, concubines, male and female musicians. But after this, Sennacherib decided it wasn't enough or that it was not safe to recognize any kind of peace with Judea. Jerusalem was too powerful a fortress, too dangerous to him as long as there was any unfriendliness there. And so he decided, after all of this, to take and destroy Jerusalem. And he besieged the city. And his commander, when he came to the walls to negotiate, insisted on speaking in Aramaic, which was Hebrew, the modern dialect. And Hezekiah and his associates nervously said, Don't talk Aramaic, please, we'll talk in Assyrian. And the commander laughed and revealed in what he had to say, it's well worth reading in the Two chapters described, four chapters in the two books. But his intelligence service was excellent. That the defections of troops had been so great also from Hezekiah. And he said, if you have men to ride cavalry, we'll supply the horses. We know what your situation is. And how close you are to radical starvation. And before long, he said, people will be resorting to the most extreme kind of measures to sustain life. Sennacherib felt confident in this situation because of the appalling weakness of the city. Nothing but the walls, really, to defend it, and a handful of men to issue terms of the most radical and humiliating sort. At this point, those who had not deserted turned to God humbly by faith. Hezekiah sent to Isaiah and asked his counsel. And Isaiah responded by saying that the Assyrians would not take the city. That they would be destroyed by the Lord. And that Sennacherib would return to his own city and perish there. And that night... 185,000 Assyrians died, and the limited number of survivors, which included Sennacherib, rode out of there in a hurry. They headed back for Nineveh, where a conspiracy of his sons led to the execution of Sennacherib. This is a matter of record, a matter of history. 
And, of course, there have been all kinds of attempts to explain what happened, that ostensibly the plague struck Sennacherib's army. This is a little difficult to swallow because there was no evidence of any plague striking any other area and to say that a plague would have struck an army and wiped them out overnight and not affected any of the surrounding cities or countries or Jerusalem where the people were weak with hunger is really... Uh, asking us to believe in a greater miracle than scripture reports. This happened. Now, how shall we view it? The concept of causality is something we need to understand, and this is as good a place to understand it as any, because here, the only way we can understand this event is to say, yes, God did work a miracle. But then every event was a product of God's providence, God's government. The very fact of the invasion was by God's design. It was judgment on Judea. Grim, brutal, perhaps. But it was very clearly ordained of God. So that it wasn't just what happened to the 185,000 that you have to deal with in terms of the concept of causality, you see. Now, in a world without God, there is no explaining anything. And everything is a mystery or a miracle. But once you introduce God and the concept of causality, you have to say it is total. You cannot say there is a cause here, but well, here God isn't operative. A world of causality, and here the contemporary philosophers of science are right. It implies God. You either face the fact that every cause is ultimately God-caused. He is the first cause. Or you eliminate him and say there's no explaining events. We'll just use the probability concept. You have to say that God was operative in every step of that invasion as well as what happened that night. Now let's turn from that to examine reality as the ancient world saw it. Apart from the world of scripture, the Hebrews and of course then the Christians in the New Testament, men in ancient times saw reality as basically made up of two substances. spirit or mind on the one hand and matter on the other. There were three possible views then for them as they faced reality. How to bring these two worlds together. 
The basic underlying one which we have everywhere in antiquity and which has survived to this day in Western civilization is the dialectical method. In the dialectical method, the two spheres, the two worlds, the two substances are seen, yes, as opposite, as basically hostile to one another, but they recognize somehow they have to maintain the two together. And so you have this dialectical tension whereby two things which are mutually exclusive of one another nonetheless are maintained. A dialectic, however, tends to break down. You are affirming, whenever you affirm a dialectical philosophy, two mutually contradictory things, and sooner or later, one or another of these destroys the other. As a result, very early you had in Aryan or Iranian, or we would say now Persian thought, dualism, Zoroastrianism, Mazaism, and a variety of other positions. Whereby they said that yes, there is a world of spirit and a world of matter, a good God and a bad God, descending on which, depending on which you decided was good and bad. But ultimately they're going to separate. And the whole process of history is the separation of these two substances that have somehow got mixed up. And of course this is disastrous because if you say spirit is the good substance then you lose your interest in the whole material world and history becomes a matter of indifference and in some forms of this it becomes a contempt of this world mysticism is tended to that in this in the western tradition on the other hand, if you say the world of matter is the real world, then you deny the whole world of mind and of spirit, and you treat man like another animal. Or the third alternative is monism, which triumphed especially in Eastern thought, in many Western mystics, and in the Greek cynics. In monism, you say the world is only spirit, and matter is an illusion, Mary Baker Eddy was a monist, a logical product of Hegel. Related, incidentally, philosophically, to Karl Marx in the same tradition. Marx was a Hegelian, Mary Baker Eddy was a Hegelian. They just took somewhat different terms, but they're first cousins intellectually. Now, you can deny the world of matter, or you can deny the world of mind. And you can, as many scientists and psychologists have done in this country, say that mind is an epiphenomenon. It's nothing, really. It's an illusion. You can reduce man entirely to drives. There is no such thing as mind. It's an illusion. You eliminate one segment of reality. This is why, of course, the cynics of Greek philosophy said that man and cynic comes from the same word, as I pointed out before, as canine, canos, dog. Man is just a dog of another kind, another animal. 
And therefore, they demanded the right and exercised the right, so-called, to copulate openly in the streets like dogs. And you had the sorry spectacle of Greek philosophers doing this deliberately, which, of course, was the same demand made in Berkeley ten years ago at the early stages of the free speech movement. You had a strong vein of monistic thinking in a group of the students there. Now, of course, depending on which of these positions you hold, your view of causality will be affected thereby. Because, first of all, in the early stages, before they pursued the matter to its logical conclusion, as modern thought has to say, well, you cannot hold to the philosophy of causality or to the idea of causality. In the ancient world, because they still had a background of recognition of God, they insisted that there had to be causality. But they separated causality into the sphere of mind or spirit and into the sphere of matter. What happened? Causality in the sphere of the material world became something mechanistic. But a machine without a mind or without a maker ultimately ceases to be a machine. And so mechanism collapsed as a philosophy in the last century. In the sphere of the mind, what is causality? Well, without a God, it has to be self-caused causality. Man has to be the cause. Man has to be his own God. This is why Plato, in this tradition, said, we must have philosopher kings who will become the source of predestination and causality in all of society. They must totally plan the life of man. And this is why today, whereas on the one hand in the material world the concept of causality is denied, because they will not admit a God behind that material world, in the world of mind they affirm a radical humanistic causality. Man is his own God. Man is the total planner, the totalitarian state. And this is inescapable. It's the logic of their position. You cannot have anything but totalitarian statism in the humanistic world. Any kind of rebellion and protest against it is futile and sterile. The logic of a humanistic position requires that the concept of causality in the world of mind become a self-caused causality, man as the predestinating agent or collective man in the form of the state. Sartre, the existentialist, has seen this clearly, and he has said, and I quote, my freedom is a choice of being God. Sartre denies that there is any unconscious in man's psychology, of course. If man is self-caused, and if man is going to be the total predestinator and planner, then man must say, no unconscious. Nothing that can make me a product, an effect, 
I am the absolute cause. Man must be free to make his own essence, to define himself, to make himself. This is what Sartre says. And he declares that, I quote, the world is human, unquote. If I am self-caused, and if I am my own God, the only world I can exist in is one I have made. So the world is human. It's a product of my mind. I made it out there. The logical conclusion, too, which I have pointed out on other occasions, is that then he has to say about you and me, because we make the same claim, for me, my neighbor is the devil. If I am God, you cannot exist as a God. You are the devil. Now, of course, Sartre was preceded a long time ago in this kind of thinking. Oriental philosophy reached the same kind of existential impasse centuries ago and developed that impasse to its horrible conclusion, the doctrine of karma. For Oriental philosophy, the world of matter is at best illusory and probably all an illusion. The world of the mind is the only area of causality, the only area of reality. And man is totally self-caused. Therefore, man is totally a product of his own karma, his own creation. And he is doomed. His freedom to be his own god winds up as a total trap. This is why life in Oriental countries is so merciless. If you're born crippled, obviously you're a scoundrel in a previous reincarnation and you're just working it out. If anything bad happens to you, well, you see, it's your own karma. You're totally self-caused. There is no causality of God. There is no world of secondary causes. Having denied God, they cannot admit anything like that. Man is totally self-caused. He is his own God, his own world. The world is entirely human for him, and therefore his karma binds him, and everything that happens has happened because he determined it. Do that. You made your own bed, lie in it. If you got robbed, it's because you brought it on yourself. If you're sick, you brought it on yourself. This is why in Oriental countries life is so pitiless, so merciless. And this is why, too, the goal then is to escape from karma, to die, to find nirvana. Sartre himself has seen the end result of it. And he says in his book, Being and Nothingness, towards the conclusion, man is a useless passion. You see, the idea of causality is one which, when divorced from God and Scripture, becomes a monster or an illusion.
deny it in the material sphere, to affirm it in the mental sphere, it destroys you. There's no way of coping with it. Now, scripture is hostile to dialecticism, to dualism, and to monism. It sees a division, but not between areas of the world, between mind and matter, but, but between God and man. God is the uncreated eternal being, and the universe and man as created beings. God is the total cause of all things. Now we have some very interesting things about causality in scripture. In Genesis, we are told that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. We tend to think of rest as a time of relaxation and a withdrawal because we're weary from work. But this is not the meaning of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word means disengaged himself, terminated active involvement in, ceased from. So what does it say? God disengaged himself from the work of creation. And then, having created man, told him to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth. But now, in a sense, there was another cause under God which was to be operative in the world, man, as a secondary cause. But having the image of God was to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth, to exercise the aspects of the image of God, knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion, to explore every area in knowledge, to exercise power, to exploit, in the good sense, all things under God. So that now God was using man as the secondary cause whereby all things were to be developed as the kingdom of God. But man fell. Now let's skip over the centuries to our Lord, and we find another interesting comment which parallels this in Genesis. In the fifth chapter of John, we have our Lord going by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. A sick man there, a cripple, and he heals him. Very interesting how often our Lord healed on the Sabbath. It was deliberate. Again and again he healed on the Sabbath. And at this point, when he is accused of violating the Sabbath, his answer is, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. John 5.17 Very interesting statement. 
What he is saying thereby is that God is continuing the work of creation and I am now doing it also. Why? Because man fell and now the work of creation was recreation, regeneration, the restoration of man into that creation calling and mandate. The God who had created all things now told man who was created in his image to exercise knowledge, to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over it, and to function now as a powerful cause under God. And man fell. So God is again engaged in the work of creation, regeneration. Behold, I make all things new. And so we see something of the goal of creation and something of the nature of causality. Creation is total. It is entirely the work of God. And causality is total. It is entirely from God. There are secondary causes, but God is the absolute cause and also the immediate cause. He is not a deistic God, not an absentee landlord, very present. The ultimate first cause of what happened to Sennacherib and the immediate present cause. The secondary causes were real, but the absolute presence of God ultimately and immediately also real. All facts thus are God-created, God-ordained, God-governed facts. There is no division in Scripture between the mental and the material. God rules all things and is the cause of all things. Now this fact looks grim if you look at all that happened to Judea and to Hezekiah. The invasion the fearful toll of it. And if you look at history in our time, and to some it seems a very ugly, grim fact, that the alternative is an absolute meaninglessness and purposelessness. Under God, every fact has reference to a total plan of creation and regeneration. That God created all things and is busy now as the absolute, ultimate and proximate cause, recreating all things, judging all things, moving all things to a glorious end. So that every cause and effect does imply a purpose. The dictionary of philosophy is correct when it calls attention to the does imply a purpose. It does imply logic. We must say it does indeed. And that's why we affirm the logic and the purpose of causality is God's ultimate plan of creation and recreation. The salvation 
and the triumph of all things under him. The doctrine of causality, therefore, is inseparable in Scripture from creation and salvation. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy grace and mercy has created all things and art now working to recreate all things in Jesus Christ, we thank thee that thou hast made us to function under thee to the end that all things may be subdued, developed, known, thy majesty set forth in and through them. Make us, our Father, more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. In his name we pray. Amen. Our time is very brief, but we do have opportunity for just a couple of questions, two, three quick questions, if there are any. Yes. Is there a distinction between creation and reality? Well, the world of God's creation is the world of reality. But the idea of reality means that which is real, true, existent. No, it would be material, mental, spiritual, whatever. Today, the idea of reality, of course, is a diminishing idea. The world of mind and matter, uh, mind is denied by many, and the world of matter has become more and more illusory to many, so that reality is really disappearing. And this is why there is such a popularity in many quarters of Buddhist ideas, because Buddhism says that nothingness is ultimate. All is illusion. So there is no reality in Buddhism. Any other questions? Yes. No, you remember when this was uh, a question raised to our Lord? Uh, is this man sick because of his sin or blind because of his sin or the sins of his fathers, our Lord denied it. And also he called attention to the wall that fell and killed 18 people, not because of their sin. You see, it's when you have the oriental idea and now the existential idea of absolute personal self-causation. But you have to say, what has happened to me is because of my sin. And I'm sick or I'm blind or I had this or that accident happen to me because of my sin. You reduce the world then to personal dimensions and everything is understandable only in terms of yourself. And the Bible says no. Everything is understandable in terms of God. There are rewards and punishments, but we cannot read all events in terms of personal sin. The rewards and punishments are not because 
we have done it because God has chosen to bless us that way, you see. In other words, the causality is not in terms of ourselves. This is the point that God makes to Job when Job tries to see what has happened to him in terms of himself. And his friends tell him, all this trouble happened to you because you sinned. Job says, I didn't. I have been a godly man. Therefore, why did it happen to me? God says, you're not the yardstick, Job. I caused it to rain where no man is. Rain falls in the ocean. It falls in uninhabited land. You cannot reduce the walls to a humanistic dimension. And of course, this is what Sartre has to do. The world for me is human. Well, that's really insane. But it's logical. And insanity is always logical. It's a logic that departs from reality. Yes. Oh, yes. There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. Now, he says that the goal of man is rest. That rest was not achieved in Canaan, although the promised land was in a sense a type of that rest. The rest comes, therefore, in Christ. And as we triumph in Christ, and as we subdue all things in Christ, it does not mean inactivity, excuse me, it means that we are disengaged, we have things under control, everything is proceeding beautifully. So we are not engaged actively in the creative process, but are in the reaping process, as it were, so that uh, we are then resting, we are reaping. We are rejoicing in that which we have done. It is the time of completed conquest. So the new creation is spoken of as a rest, as a Sabbath, an eternal Sabbath, and also a time of work. Uh, I don't want to go too much into that because on the next Sunday probably, and if not, next Sunday, the Sunday after, we will be dealing with the idea of the Sabbath in relationship to what we have been discussing today. Well, if there are no further questions, first an announcement and then just a brief report. The Calcedon Guild Annual Meeting and Tea will be held this Saturday, May the 13th at 2 p.m., at the home of Peggy and Don Taylor, 1201 South Halliday in Santa Ana, and I will be speaking on the Christian family. Please let Gloria Bizard or Florette Edwards know if you are coming. They're both present. And the Taylors do have a map showing the directions to their home in case you need to uh, have help on that. So please see Don or Peggy after the service. Now, the week before last, a week ago Saturday, I returned from my trip in Indiana. It was suggested that I 
give a brief report on it because I was remarked it would be encouraging to know how the work is progressing. Well, it was a very encouraging trip. In fact, it was a thoroughly successful one. The uh, meetings were remarkably well attended at all the schools and universities where I spoke. And one of the very uh, pleasing things was to see the number of faculty members who had been influenced by my books. In fact, uh, I went to one college I didn't know existed until they contacted me to go there and lecture as a thousand students, and uh, some of the key members of the faculty have been very profoundly influenced by my books and were responsible for my going there. And on Thursday, I spent all day lecturing with scarcely a break at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, and was very agreeably surprised to find the same thing there, where I didn't expect it, to find that uh, the new chairman of the economics department uh, had been profoundly influenced by my book, and a couple of men in the administration, and a good many others as well. In fact, uh, as a result of my lectures, they decided to set up a seminar for a week in December, uh, lectures from morning to evening, a special course for all students, honor students in particular, and graduates, credit course on the politics of Babel. Uh, title is derived from one of my talks, and there will be five of us lecturing. Dietze from Johns Hopkins, Rice from Notre Dame, Percy Greaves, The Economist, and, uh, let's see, oh yes, uh, uh, Molnar from NYU. Uh, so, uh, I think it's going to be quite an interesting seminar, and I spoke also on Tuesday noon to a luncheon, which was by invitation only of some of the top officials in the state of Indiana and top men in the community, and uh, every day I was driven around by one or another state official of Indiana, which was... Uh, quite a pleasure, and one day it was entirely with the use of the uh, pace car for the Indianapolis 500, uh, which wasn't entirely a pleasure because it's almost a terrifying car. It'll go from nothing to over a hundred miles in uh, a few seconds and cruise at 130, and it did. <laughs> <laughs> and as I say, I got home last Saturday, and then Sunday night, someone stopped by who was here in Santa Monica with the Rand uh, Institute, and is with the Dutch government, and he brought over a Dutch magazine, which had translated into Dutch the January or February Calcedon Report which I didn't know about. The entire issue of this magazine was on the United States, an examination of 
trends in the United States when the Calcedon Report had been translated in its entirety and included. So, and at the same time, I found a letter awaiting me when I returned from South Africa, from Rhodes University, asking for another article. So, uh, the work of Calcedon is getting recognition. I was really amazed at how much our things are read and are circulating in areas where I didn't know they knew we existed. So our work is having an impact, and uh, that was very gratifying. Well, our time is up. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction. <laughs> now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.